Welcome back to Cineversary, a podcast that celebrates a milestone anniversary of a masterful work of cinema. Each month, we send happy birthday wishes to a different film currently observing a joyous jubilee, everything from a 20th to a 100th anniversary. I'm your host, Eric Martin, creator and moderator of the Cineverse Film Discussion Group that meets weekly in the Chicagoland area. Well, last month, I announced that July would be all about All About Eve, which celebrates a 70th birthday this year. Unfortunately, the guest who I wanted to interview was not available, so we're going to shelve the Eve commemoration for later this year, which is when its actual anniversary occurs anyway. So instead, I've got a real treat for you. This month, we're going to honor the 80th anniversary of one of the very best screwball comedies ever made. It's Howard Hawks' His Girl Friday. And who better to discuss the fast-talking screwball with me than renowned feminist film critic Molly Haskell, author of the groundbreaking book From Reverence to Rape, The Treatment of Women in the Movies, and a regular contributor over the years to the Criterion Collection and Turner Classic Movies. Molly and I will explore why His Girl Friday is worth celebrating all these years later, its cultural impact and legacy, what we can learn from the picture today, how it stood the test of time, and more. And rest assured that we won't talk 500 miles per hour like the characters in this flick do. For the full scoop on this month's motion picture, let's turn to Wikipedia for some needed context. How about? So, His Girl Friday is a 1940 American screwball comedy drama romance film directed by Howard Hawks and starring Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell. It was released by Columbia Pictures. The plot centers on a newspaper editor named Walter Burns who's about to lose his ace reporter and ex-wife, Hildy Johnson, newly engaged to another man. Burns suggests that they cover one more story together, getting themselves entangled in the case of murderer Earl Williams as Burns desperately tries to win back his wife. The screenplay was adapted from the 1928 play The Front Page by Ben Hecht and Charles MacArthur. This was the second time the play had been adapted for the screen, the first occasion being the 1931 film also called The Front Page. Now, the script for His Girl Friday was written by Charles Letterer and Ben Hecht, who's not credited for his contributions, unfortunately. The major change in this version, introduced by Hawks, is that the role of Hildy Johnson is a woman. Filming began in September 1939 and finished in November, seven days behind schedule. Production was delayed because the frequent improvisation and numerous ensemble scenes required many retakes. Surprise, surprise. Hawks encouraged his actors to be aggressive and spontaneous, creating several moments in which the characters break the fourth wall. His Girl Friday has been noted for its surprises, comedy, and rapid overlapping dialogue. Hawks himself was determined to break the record for the fastest film dialogue at the time held by the front page. His Girl Friday was originally released in January of 1940, so technically we're a few months late with the birthday festivities, but hey, better late than never, right? It ranks as number 19 on the American Film Institute's 100 Years, 100 Laughs list of the greatest comedies and was selected in 1993 for preservation in the United States National Film Registry of the Library of Congress as culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. The movie's in the public domain, actually, because the copyright was not renewed. His Girl Friday currently earns a near-perfect 98% Rotten Tomatoes score, where it also earns an average critical score of 9.07 out of 10. 
You've heard it said that a picture is worth a thousand words, but so is an original trailer. So here goes. From the Columbia Studios in Hollywood comes an exciting new film triumph. A companion hit to Mr. Smith goes to Washington. His Girl Friday. Co-starring a thrilling new pair of screen lovers. Devil May Care, Cary Grant, and ravishing Rosalind Russell. Let's listen in to one of their tender, idyllic love scenes. I am fond of you, you know. And a girl? I often wish you weren't such a stinker. Okay, before I introduce my guest, it's my duty to remind you that, as is true every month, the conversation you're about to hear is spoiler-tastic. So if you're listening to this without the benefit of having screened His Girl Friday, don't make me turn this car around. Get thee to YouTube or Amazon Prime and watch the movie. All set? Then I'm thrilled to roll out the red carpet for my guest, former film critic for The Village Voice, New York Magazine, Vogue, and other prestigious publications, previous co-host of The Essentials on TCM, esteemed film professor, spouse to the late film critic Andrew Saris, and author of several books on the cinema, most recently Steven Spielberg, A Life in Films, the one, the only, Molly Haskell. Molly, welcome and thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, and I'm so delighted to now know about your podcast, because I don't know how I had, hadn't come across it before, but it's now my absolute favorite, and I think I'm afraid it's going to take all of my time to get through all the ones you've already done, but uh, it's thank very you sweet. for thank you. Glad you're enjoying it. Thank you for the kind words. When did you first see His Girl Friday, and tell us why this film is important to you, Molly. I cannot remember when I first saw it, but I'm just trying to remember 
and sort of look up and, and refresh my memory. I think it was, the, first of all, the French were the ones who really saw hogs body of work before Americans did, because for various reasons of distribution and how we're using certain films were released and certain weren't. And they were watching them. And I, in fact, I was watching this documentary the other night on TCM where Bertrand Tavin, it's a documentary he made about his love of French film, hmm. which had been in the film festival. And he talks about Jacques Becker, who was so influenced. He was directing films, you know, in the 40s and 50s and I don't think late 30s and how influenced he was by Hawks. And Jacques Rivette wrote about that influence. And, and he sort of was showing that how in the films of Becker, there was that kind of medium length shot that he used as sort of the same kind of dynamic um, group portrayals and things like that. So that was interesting. And then Andrew Saris and Peter Bogdanovich sort of took up the causes with the, with the politique des auteurs, having read Cahiers du Cinema and been very influenced by the French point of view. Mm-hmm. So I think... I wasn't in New York at this point, and then when I did come, I wasn't kind of in the film world for a while, so this sort of predates my Hawks enthusiasm, but they there were retrospectives at MoMA, and I think Dan Talbot, I asked Toby, his widow, if she remembers them showing his Girl Friday at the New Yorker Theater, which Dan founded in like 1960, and she said she's sure it was there, she just can't remember when, and, and Peter and Andrew were doing a lot of programming for Dan at that theater, so I think it was around the 60s, but I think, in a way, I think the screwball comedies were a little later becoming fashionable for whatever reason. I taught them, but that was sort of later in the 80s and 90s in my film class. Mm-hmm. But I think it was, it was certainly in the late 60s because Peter Bogdanovich made What's Up, Doc? in 1972, and, right. and the critics got the references to bringing up Baby. Mm-hmm. So by that time, they were in sort of general or at least film specialist circulation. I don't know, remember if I was blown away by it. I think I'm in a way I'm more blown away by it now than I was then. Mm. And I, I think it's just, it's sort of a miracle of, of sorts. It's this kind of perpetual motion machine that just yes. never stops. And oh, that's so well It leaves put. you breathless. And there's been nothing like it. I was doing a talk on it last summer at a benefit for this, building this new theater. And they showed his Girl Friday and I spoke mm-hmm. about it. And before the thing, this young woman from the, local paper called up and she said well is it relatable and i thought well, you know i just don't know why don't you try relating to it instead of making it relate to you so that's my attitude that's a great about, answer the trouble is the present is so different from the past and it's terrifying the pace of change we've been through so it's very hard for mm-hmm. the past i think to teach us anything really in some ways just because things have changed so fast and and the world is kind of upside down but yeah. i think in a way, it's more important. I just feel it's more important than ever for people to mm-hmm. see where we've come from in order to understand why we made the mistakes, which they now see as sort of unforgivable, but what mm-hmm. the context was. And for instance, just simply the, the roles of women sure. have expanded so rapidly since then. But I mean, I think all the screwball comedies were were one of women's best genres because mm-hmm. they allowed them, it, because it was taught. Um, I think it was Andrew that called the screwball comedy the sex comedy without sex, because by this time the production code was had become very rigid and you couldn't mm-hmm. you, know, you really couldn't show anything. So right. what, what did you? So you had talk instead of sex, and talk is the eros. I mean, yeah. just this um, violence is the eros of a Maurice Scorsese film. So talk is the eros, the back and forthness, the battlefield, the battle of the of the sexes. That's the eros, and it's also what you you feel as 
the connection of this couple. I mean, this is mm-hmm. rapid fire talk between them. And to go back a little bit, it comes from, of course, the front page. The front page was a play by Ben Heck and Charles MacArthur that played on Broadway in 1928. And then a film was made of that in 1931. Mm-hmm. This was actually before the production code had become so rigid. I mean, there was still a little bit of censorship, but it was basically a racy time. And it was also yes. that movies had become sound films. Mm-hmm. So they were hungry for, for talking scripts and for plays, a lot of Broadway plays. And the newspaper world was full of sort of savvy, racy, fast-talking people. So it was a natural. So that was made into the film, in a, a, quite a good film in 1931. Um, by the time Hawks did it in 1940, he had this genius idea of, because it's really a buddy film, the ruthless editor and his star reporter, and they were both male in all the ori- earlier versions. The editor, of course, is trying to keep the, the reporter from going off and getting married, and he will use any the most underhanded means necessary. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the story went that Hawks had a secretary or a woman friend or somebody read, just he was going over the script and read it, and, and he's just, uh, Eureka, let's make it a female. But That's I don't right. know one's ever come forth to sort of to verify the story. Right. I think it was just something Hawks would have done. It was mm-hmm. I mean, he first of all, he uh, he had done Only Angels Have Wings, and all of these films are kind yes. of romance, what we now call romance, these really intense buddy stories. So he understood it was a love story. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. It was a triangle between the editor, the reporter, and the fiancé. So he had this, this brilliant idea of, of adapting it that way, and, mm. and that's how it sort of all came into being. Wow, you gave me the 800-foot view from a top, which I really appreciate. You provided some good kind of pretext and context to a lot of the questions I'd like to get into with you. So why is this movie worth celebrating all these years later, Molly? Why does it still matter, and how has it stood the test of time? First of all, it's charting. I think women, whether it's screwball comedy or whatever the genre, mm-hmm. you can always see a theme, if there are films with men and women in them, of women sort of trying to find their place in the world. Where do I belong in a man's world, which is what it was, and, and still is to some extent, but basically was was ex- almost exclusively a man's world in the 30s and 40s when these films were being made. And since there wasn't a profession open, and this doesn't apply to His Girl Friday, that's what's unique about it, but generally speaking in the screwball comedy, there wasn't a profession open, but how the women declared herself, how she had her so-called agency, mm-hmm. was in the dialogue where she gave as good yes. as she got to the man, yes. and that's that was sort of expressive of a certain equality that was aimed for in the screwball comedy. And that was what was sort of exciting and exhilarating about them, that the women gave as good as they got. And even physically in something like 20th century, mm-hmm. Carol Lombard is physical with John, John Barrymore. So right. you have this, this battle of wits where you feel it's quite equal. Of course, in a way, his girl Friday, the, the male is not, it's a real you know, sort of, males supreme male uh, sort of trying to, to dominate the woman it's not quite the same as say the awful truth where you really do feel a, a real equilibrium of course right. there too you have the man who's the philanderer and the woman can't be a philanderer like a man can be so mm-hmm. but in, in a sense it comes out in in some kind of equilibrium but with this you've got a newspaper woman which i mean there were a few women playing newspaper women and there were real life in fact this is her dress in this, that wonderful hat and the striped suit that, that Rosalind Russell wears mm-hmm. is supposedly based on um, Adela Rogers St. John's. It was a well-known reporter at the time. 
Is that so this, right? Yeah, and Luella Parsons, uh, they were women re- reporters. Sure. And so she has this kind of swagger. She's actually the star reporter, and, and, and everybody acknowledges this. All the other reporters acknowledge it. So, I mean, she really is uh, on a kind of pedestal there, which is quite unusual. And I think it's just one of the films that in line of the evolving roles of women that we see mm. in movies and in, in both explicit and implicit ways. Yeah, I want to get into that with you more in a further question. I think it still matters in addition to all the things you said, because it's one of the finest and most representational screwball comedies, which we've already kind of talked exactly. about. Exactly. And there's nothing like it, you know, when it came out, I mean, the, the front page is also a fairly fast talking, but it's up like a silent film compared to His Girl Friday. Right. It's funny because Pauline Kael attributed it to, to Hector MacArthur, the dialogue, mm-hmm. but it's really Hawks who did this thing of having, instead of a covering, he had multiple microphones all right. over the set. That's right. And he enc- he encouraged the actors to step on each other's lines, mm-hmm. and, and he dispensed with the boom so that you had all these multiple microphones yes. to get greater clarity from all the different people. Uh-huh. But for technical reasons, the mics couldn't operate simultaneously, so you had the sound engineer frantically switching from one Running to the back other. And forth, on right? Yeah. It's nuts. And then at some point, Rosalind Russell resented that Cary Grant, she thought Cary Grant had so many more better lines than she did. Mm-hmm. So she got her brother-in-law who was in advertising or something to make some make up some lines for her. Yeah, I read that. So yes. and do feel this, that they have sort of equal time and equal mm-hmm. wit. I mean, nobody in film talks that fast today or that much. You just don't have it. So that's no. what's absolutely unique. In this film, even in comparison with the other screwball comedies, that's what's exciting and breathless. And it's it's this kind of the, the relentlessness kind of sweeps you up in it, and you just don't you, you can't even question all the sort of amoral. I mean, it's a totally amoral. It's sort of a, a Valentine to the newspaper. This is in, in Hector MacArthur's man. who both worked as newspaper men in Chicago, so they knew this sort of world of yellow journalism, which it was sort of fake news out of all mm. that left. So it was a kind of both a valentine to the newspaper yes. world and a kind of morality play of the horrors. I mean, it's a moral swamp they're living in and they just, they're, I mean, they're mm-hmm. sort of cheerfully bigoted and racist and sexist. And you know. so I think a lot of that people would sort of shudder. I think they do probably so, mm. shudder at some of it. And they refer to um, Earl Williams, the anarchist who's running from the law, his this sort of pathetic, sweet little true believer, not communist, but anarchist, he insists. But he's shot what they call a colored man, and then all the politicians get in on the act. So one of the things about the abundance and speed of the dialogue is they just talk so fast because they, they don't dare stop and think about what they're doing. You know, just, Yeah, exactly. And yeah. the viewer sometimes doesn't have a chance to catch up and think exactly. much. Just, I you mean, just got to take yeah. it. I mean, Cary Grant, when you look at that performance, you just can't quite believe it. I mean, you know, they've made all these other versions. I mean, of course, was Billy Wilder did one with men, with Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon. Yes. And then I just noticed there was this one, oh God, I can't remember the name of it now. I've written it down, but I just happened on it the other night with Kathleen Turner and oh, Burt Reynolds. Switching channels. Switching channels, yeah. That's actually kind of a loose remake of this of this movie. This story has oh, been is. filmed at this least really, four times. Yeah, it is, and it's never worked very well. Well, I was reading about switching channels, and apparently they just, I mean, this would make a good movie, that Kathleen Turner and Burt Reynolds apparently hated each other. <laughs> he couldn't stand the role. I mean, he felt 
that it was her movie in a way. So he was mm. resenting, which is interesting that he felt that. But they could I mean, make they movie really just did... on how much they hated each other. <laughs> exactly, that would be really interesting <laughs> because right. there's a lot of that in there. You know, that animus should be there. I mean, that's yeah. a, a big part of it. Sure. But what's so great in his girl Friday is turn, he just being ungallant with a vengeance. You know, he mm. doesn't pull, doesn't pull a chair out for. Her. He goes nope. out of the door first, and he just. It's yeah, funny. And, it's but, funny, but in real life, you kind of whoa, whoa. If you saw somebody doing that, you might do a double take. Exactly, but, but, but you can't take it seriously. This is this is screwball comedy territory. Exactly, right? exactly. Yeah. You know that he's putting mm-hmm. on an act. I mean, he's doing this deliberately. Yeah. In a way. I mean, it's really about he's competing for, for her. So, I mean, he probably loves her, but but it's really the, the blood of the competitive sport there to get her right. away from Ralph Bellamy. So everything that Bellamy does, he's, he's just doing the opposite. Right. But and it's you know by the end story. that he's ultimately, his ulterior motive is to win her back. I mean, he does love of her. Course. He wants her back. It's just that yeah. he's not the kind of guy who's ever going to say those words, I love you. He's, no, he's never going to yeah. say it. But it's all there. <laughs> it's hilariously funny, but there's also something underlying very moving about it. It's when they go to, the three of them go to lunch, to that early scene. Mm-hmm. And he and he is he's making all these horrible remarks, and she's calling him a snake. And But every time he says something something demeaning or outrageous you can tell she enjoys it i mean they enjoy it when each other gets the best of each other they're made for each other i mean she enjoys it when he gets the best of her in a way and he enjoys it when she gets the best of him i think this movie really still matters because it could be the fastest spoken film ever made now we've already kind of touched on this and, and i'd like to dovetail back to it in the next question too but Hawks, he was actually trying to break the record at the time for the speediest dialogue ever filmed. So even if that's a gimmick, it's just a fascinating gimmick. We talked about some of the remakes. There was the Mm -hmm. 31 original based on the 28th stage play, but then there was Mm -hmm. this film. And then there was uh, a remake in 1974. And then we talked about switching channels in 88. So my point here is that this is not only the finest version of this story adapted to the big screen, but I think it's mm-hmm. one of the very best remakes of all time. When you think about remakes, yes. I mean, Hollywood is bankrupt of ideas today. There's It's Remake City. But is there a more exemplary remake than His Girl Friday? No, I can't think of one. I'm, I'm, when, you, when we get off, I'm going to try to think of one, but I don't think so. <laughs> we talked about Cary Grant. I think this is his very finest performance. He's such an underrated actor. I don't think he ever won an Oscar. Not that that really matters, but... Mm-hmm. You think of all the great mm. roles he has played and, and so many screwball comedies in which it's very hard mm. for me anyway to pick a favorite of his roles. They're all so great. But I think this movie features debatably the finest performances in both the careers of Grant and Rosalind Russell. I mean, their comedic so. timing, their cadence, physical gesticulations, mm. their sheer ability mm. to deliver lines at a practically impossible pace, the blocking, mm. the choreography. Uh, I mean, the, the the collaboration with Hawks in terms of being able to frame everybody uh, the right way in the scene, that takes real talent. And there's so much going on here behind the scenes, you could tell. There's so much planning, even though there is an improvisational spirit and an ad-libbing going on to some extent. You could tell that a movie like this really takes a lot of careful strategy. And I think Grant and Rosalind are so up to that challenge. They equip themselves so nicely in this movie. I absolutely agree. I can't imagine anyone else in those roles. And I think it's the, the I think it is the crowning achievement of both as I mean, of course, it's a little bit easier to, I mean, Russell didn't have as many out and out triumphs as Grant did. True. So it's a little harder with Grant. But 
yeah, to me, I mean, it's it's like a it's like opera. It's like a it's like a sports event. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's so many different things, and despite the, the speed of the dialogue and the multiple voices, it's always clear. I mean, I mean, basically know what's going on when you need to know what's going on. Right. And it just sort of sweeps you up, and it's relentless. And you know, people used to a little bit. I remember when we saw it, maybe when I was showing it, second wave feminism, and we like endings in which women capitulated in the end, and all. But mm-hmm. I think the ending now, I, I find it's it's. First of all, it's interesting when I showed this film, it was mostly an older crowd and some of them may have seen it before and some of them hadn't. And they were just stunned at everything about it. It's like you're on this merry-go-round and finally you just have to collapse. I mean, that's mm. all it is. It's just, uh, you know, she's been tossed this way and that way. She's She's been of two minds the whole way. She's been to- torn between these two men and finally she knows where she's going and she just sort of collapses and, and we all yeah. do. We just have to catch our breath. Right. And one of the things one person said, I guess we were talking about, can you imagine it with anyone else in those roles? And of course, nobody could imagine it. I mean, only Cary Grant could get away with that, the things that he says. Right. And it's only because he's he, it's in a deliberately exaggerated performance as mm-hmm. he sort of suggested. His eyeballs are popping and she just at one point she says, oh, you'd stop acting or something. So quite consciously putting on a performance for her. So I think you, you sort of, we, we accept it on that level and you just know nobody else could get away with it. Somebody suggested, what about Carol Lombard in Rosalind Russell's role? And I hadn't thought it out at that point, but, you know, I guess they thought, well, maybe she's, she's a little sexier, but mm-hmm. I, I just can't imagine anyone but Rosalind Russell. Somebody said, well, how did she get away with being that strong and that, you know, practically as equal and even, even better than the other news? How did she get away with it? How did she not have to pay for that? Thinking about it, I think it's because she brings this womanly quality to it. I mean, she's just an ace reporter, the best writer, but also she has this humanity. I mean, her humanity towards Molly Malloy and Earl. I mean, the others are just so cynical about that. They just almost can't wait for the the execution. And she just has this kind of this empathy. And I think it's what modulates the whole movie. I mean, there's this kind of soul. She has a soul at the core of it. Right. which you don't have. I think it's one of the reasons this is better than, than all the other versions, because she brings something to it that nobody brings in the other versions, and that it was a genius of Hawks to see this and to let this yeah. happen, because basically he's interested in the work world, and it's a, usually a man's world with him, mm. and there are always really interesting women in it, but basically it's a man's world, and he allows her to impinge on this man's world. I mean, usually... She has to be a little bit of a man, which is make, which is why we love the Hawks female protagonists and heroines is because there's, there's an androgynous quality. He says at some point, oh, I hired you because you flashed those goo-goo eyes at me, so, <laughs> implying that maybe she not slept with him, but, you know, flirted with him for the job. Mm-hmm. But I see her as more in the tradition of Hawks, uh, women like Catherine Hepburn in Bringing Up Baby and sure. Paula Prentice in Man's mm-hmm. Favorite Sport as a kind of awkward woman who's been maybe a tomboy and maybe she's taller than all the guys. You know, she's being awkward and taller than the men that she would go out with and, and you know, even a little bit nerdy. So, and you see that when she um, she rushes out. I mean, all of them are living for the sound of the siren, right? I mean, it's just the call of the crime. <laughs> and she goes rushing out, and she tries to hold her hat on her head, and she's got that sleek suit on, and she yes. can, she's running 
with heels and it's just <laughs> this wonderfully awkward propulsive moment mm-hmm. and falls it's a very physical performance but she proves that she's a determined and skilled female who can defy those expectations of what i mean this time women are expected to get married at a young age have children tend the house mm. cook the meals put career aspirations on hold in deference to patriarchal pressures right so here you have such a fascinating different kind of character and even in a profession, as you said, dominated by men, are there any other ways that this character, Hildy Johnson, is so important in cinema up to this point, especially compared to typical female characters in Hollywood films of this time, Molly? Well, yeah, with all the reasons I've said. And also what, what you said is, but also you have here that option. She, that's what she thinks she wants. She say, I mean, she's been programmed, like all of us were, to get mm-hmm. married and settle down and have children. And that's what she thinks she wants. Isn't that right. what we all want? So that's what she comes in with with Bruce and poor Ralph Bellamy is just wonderful in this role, and so he, he seems like the perfect you know he's courtly and he wears his rubbers and you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's what she thinks she wants. She wants to settle down with the, in the suburbs with a little picket White House and picket fence, and then she has to. I mean Stanley Cavell in the comedies of remarriage, which mm-hmm. is really what, what one, of, one of which this is. Um, talks about the woman's transformation, but to me, it's not so much that as allowing one side of her to emerge and the other to recede because she's ambivalent. I mean, she thinks she wants the proper woman's domestic life, mm-hmm. of marriage and domesticity, and yet she loves, I mean, the way she responds to the emergency, it shows that that's what she really is. She's the, the best newspaper man. So you see her actually through the catalyst of Grant choosing work of the conventional home life. Absolutely. I want to go back uh, for a moment here. In what ways do you think His Girl Friday was influential on cinema and popular culture, for that matter, or set trends in any way? So we talked about, of course, the speedy dialogue and the overlapping dialogue. Mm. They're often speaking at a frenetic pace. Two or more characters, you know, talk simultaneously. And I think that this forces the viewer to try to keep up with what is said and helps to cram in a lot of jokes and content in a short amount of time. And to me, anyway, that makes the film more rewarding on repeat viewings. What do you think here? Yeah, I agree. Um, I think because you catch more each time and you sort of appreciate the framing and the way people interact within the frames and the different and all the character roles are so, so much fun. And you have time to sort of get to know them. And I mean, you feel at the end of it, I think the way she feels, you sort of out of breath. You know, I don't know about the influence. I, I haven't thought about that. It's almost inimitable, it, it seems to me, mm-hmm. since people have tried to imitate it and have failed. I guess eventually the talk was no longer the same. I mean, if you look at the, all the great or not so great romantic comedies that have come along since then, mm-hmm. I can't think of any that are like that, and especially the sort of recent ones are not all that verbal. They're right. sort of goofy and and they're behavioral. That's a whole different thing. And yeah. I was thinking about, we appreciate it also because we haven't seen it anywhere else. and It ha- hasn't been mm. duplicated anywhere. Let me give some ammunition here to some evidence I uncovered. Reportedly, the average word per minute pace in this movie is 240, 240 words a minute. Now, I found that the typical wow. speed is approximately 140 words per minute in a normal conversation. But in watching the bonus features on the Criterion edition of this film, David Boardwell, he said that he and his folks did their own research, and at some points it goes up to 300 words per minute. 
a typical wow. rate in this movie. So, I mean, it even surpasses what they thought. So they're going wow. more than twice the speed at, at some points. And it, it makes sense. It's it's so fast. I have to turn on the subtitles just to appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> this time around, I'm, I'm so you glad know. the subtitles were there. Consider yeah. that the final screenplay, it tallied 191 pages. And usually uh, each page of a screenplay equates to about 60 to 90 seconds of screen time. But then you think, mm-hmm. well, this movie's runtime is only 92 minutes. And what does that tell you? <laughs> Hawks <laughs> is going for sweet. the world record here. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Uh, and you it talked is, about already work. this time they're relying on a single boom. So the sound technician, they were more innovative in terms of uh, using multiple mics and having to turn them on and off. We talked about how Hawks allowed his actors to use ad-libbing and improvisation to generate more realistic discourse. So those are all kind of adding up to some innovation here. But did it parlay into any other films that, that took the lead of his well, the, girl friday one just mm-hmm. struck me and it's always getting credit for this pioneering thing but he isn't it's altman i mean no altman question. used overlapping dialogue and multiple multiple um, mics having people interrupt each other and all that he did it for a slightly different end which That's was true. not clarity he wanted to sort of obscure and have people step on each other i mean hawks does this he has people step on each other but yes. you still hear what they say whereas altman deliberately kind of fudgy he wants it yes. a little bit fudgy but it's still the same principle, and somehow, I mean, you never hear Hawks' name mentioned when you put people talk about Altman and the mm. overlapping dialogue. Or somebody like Renoir also has that. This, they love this thing, the realism of the sense of people. Mm. I mean, I don't think that people actually do that that much in conversation, but they think that there's something more real about it, and maybe mm. this feels less scripted. Yeah. When you have well, when people you, doing that. When yeah. you have a, yeah. a 90 or so minute movie in, in the golden age of Hollywood that needs to be made, I mean, you're going to have overlapping dialogue if you want to cram all this in. But I agree, exactly. in real life yeah. it may not be that realistic. Uh, Hawks said, well, listen to people at a cocktail party sometime. They do it all the time. I agree with you. It may not be that plausible, but I totally buy it for it, this movie. That's really interesting because you realize it's convention. All these things are conventions. Mm-hmm. And this was a convention there. And you have this compression. And this is what distinguishes it, I think, from modern romantic comedy, which is the opposite, where things are, everything is kind of elongated and stretched out. Yeah. And it has much more of a kind of ad libby feel. There's a kind of shaggy dog rhythm. You feel like they, they don't have any time limits. I mean, some of them are actually not that long, but they feel long right. just because you, the rhythm is, 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 is so slow. And you don't have sort of punchlines and things like that. It's anti that kind of. Uh, those kinds of conventions. Right. Okay, a few more innovations before we go to the next question here. So this would have been, a, of course, a groundbreaking portrayal of a smart, autonomous, resourceful, strong-willed female lead. It would have been, you know, kind of groundbreaking in terms of the gender politics and the bending of that. This helped solidify the newspaper story subgenre, I would argue. It's still cited today. Some people list it as their favorite newspaper movie. And it's one that, upon its release, supposedly inspired many to pursue a career in the press. You often hear, after people watched All the President's Men, uh, there was suddenly a flurry of uh, prospects rushing to join the newsroom, so to speak. Well, I guess that happened after this movie, from what I read. And you also, Molly, you got to ponder the many films about the newspaper business that immediately followed in His Girl Friday's wake. So let's rattle them off. Foreign Correspondent, same year. And again, these are all after the release date of His Girl Friday. Foreign Correspondent, The Philadelphia Story, Citizen Kane, Meet John Doe, and Penny Serenade. That's just a handful of examples, but I think there is a little interesting trend that this kind of jump-started. 
My last point here is that it's also an early example of a meta movie. I'm sure you've heard of this, right? It's, it's a movie that kind of slyly comments on the motion picture biz by providing amusing references. So what are the references here? Of course, Archie Leach, Grant's real name, he guess, oh, yeah. and Ralph Bellamy. And the joke there yeah. is that he plays Bruce, and he also portrayed a similar third-wheel suitor in The Awful Truth three years earlier. I just love Ralph Bellamy in this role. But yes, it's a meta movie kind of before there were meta movies. I can't think of many earlier examples of that. Yeah, it's wonderful. And, and that, the idea of Cary Grant commenting on his own persona and his own origins yeah. is just fantastic, yeah. So I want to ask you, Molly, what is the moral of the story? Are there any themes or messages of note that are explored in His Girl Friday? Well, I think Hawks always is interested in, in men, and I think men in a general way, human beings, but men at work. Mm-hmm. Work is the way people express themselves. Work is what they do. Work is just the élan vital of their lives. And to, for a woman to also be allowed to have this as the center of her life is sort of revolutionary in a way it just it just wasn't happening and, and the morality is questionable and, and, and it's sort of funny that the idea that people would have decided to become newspaper men because of this because it's the portrait of newspaper men is, is certainly checkered it's not exactly um you know it's not all the president's men not heroic at all right uh, and it's anti-heroic and that's why I, I think here's one of the things i think is important about this and the screwball comedies and the lack of sentimentality, particularly in, in yes. Hawks, I think. The other side of that is a kind of cruelty. I mean, there's a kind of elitism in Grant and Russell persona, as there is in all of them. I mean, most of the screwball couples, they, they don't have children. They, they have money. You know, they live in this rarefied world. They're not encumbered in the way that some people might be. So mm-hmm. there is a kind of elitism. I think another funny thing here, which is that it's so condescending and even even ridiculing of the suburbs and of course of the people like Ralph Bellamy and some of these are the people that are going to movies you know so <laughs> so it's their audience that they're they're dissing and That's true. That, that you know this idea there is a hierarchy and mm-hmm. Grant and Russell are funnier and cooler and more interesting and exciting than the people beneath them but there's also a sense that these newspaper men are kind of not moral cripples exactly but certainly they have blunted ethics so they're not heroic in that sense. I don't know if you saw My Name is Dolomite. No, I didn't. Eddie it's Murphy. on my uh, Netflix Yeah, list. it's really yeah. fun. And Eddie Murphy plays this comedian who's coming into his own in, in California in the 70s. And at one point, he goes into the theater where the front page is playing, the Billy Wilder version. Okay. And he's sitting there in, with all this white art and, the, and the, all the audience, which is all white, are laughing hysterically, and he's sitting there looking. He doesn't get it at all. So, um, so that you know, there really is a time-bound, class-bound mm-hmm. element to the movie. Sure. Again, when you look at these recent, I mean, say the comedies of Lynn Shelton, which I like a lot, or I was just looking at this new one, Palm Springs, which is a sort of Groundhog Day revisited. But they're all kind of they have this sort of shambolic quality, as I suggested earlier. And here too, the couples are of an, of an elite of their own, but this time it's mostly because it's not that they're brighter and shinier than everybody else, but they're not pompous and conventional. You know, mm-hmm. they're, they're kind of a little bit eccentric and goofy. That's the, the new sex appeal. I mean, you have it in people like Seth Rogen and, and Mark Duplass, attractive women, and the attractive women go for the for sort of the funny, goofy guy. It's a sure. whole different <laughs> kind of sex appeal thing. 
but with I think with his girl Friday, what you feel is that the conversation is the erotic anchor of the relationship, and that the worst thing for a marriage is not infidelity but boredom, and they're just never going to yes. be bored. Yes. No question that, about it. Because all the all the romantic calamities and screwballs are so not, not asking not only am I are you the right person for me and what is my life going to be with you, but is this yeah it's what is my life going to be with you is is it is marriage worth it you know they're almost asking that question all of them I think that's sort of true of the comedies before and and now and who am I in this relationship. And I think that's particularly always been true of women because men sort of knew who they were and they didn't mm. have, it wasn't problematic, whereas women it was. Great thoughts. I racked my brain in answer to this question, trying to think of themes or messages or morals to the story, because how seriously can you take a movie like His Girl Friday? So I think the main message, it's hard to argue here, is you need to stay true to yourself and your talents. We see how yeah. by the denouement that Hildy is relieved that she's reunited with Walter. She's going to continue yeah. as an in-demand journalist, and she's avoided the temptation to settle down and live a life of likely, what, spousal subservience in the burbs with someone who's not her intellectual and emotional equal. So you got to stay true to yourself and your talents. I think it's not so much true to self because that self has been divided. It's a divided self. Okay. It's a woman who grows up. I mean, it's still the same theme, I think. It's still the same. It's your finer self, your most creative self that you want to, mm. that you've you come into, you accept, okay. you commit to. The two sides are there, and that's what makes it so tough. And that's what's the whole tension in the film is not just Earl Williams and all of that. It's a tension in Hildy. And I think you, this is really the story of, of all the screwball comedies. And if you want to call it a moral, that's fine. I mean, I think the morality is implicit as opposed to films that win Academy Awards. I mean, you know, all these, there was, I think about the same time you had the Lady Eve and Chop Around the Corner two, three, and this, three of the greatest screwball comedies. I don't know, Shop is maybe romantic comedy, but it of all time and not a single Academy Award. I think there was one nomination among them for Story and Lady Eve. And Greer Garson movies and more, you know, other things where the country was pulling together the war. Mm -hmm. And the comedy then and now, it just was not taken seriously. And because you couldn't say, well, this is about something important, but it is about something important, as you and I have just discussed. But uh, what a woman does in life is not considered as important as what a country does at the, you know, in the time of war, you know. Sure. But right. to me, it's, it's, it's just as important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another one I thought of is the importance of adapting to a chaotic and rapidly changing world. So we observe mm -hmm. how Hildy rolls with the changes thrown at her, how she impressively multitasks and quickly pivots to situations mm -hmm. as they abruptly shift, right? There's a value mm -hmm. to thinking quickly on your feet, to talking faster than the other person, and to doing what it takes to get the story as this mm -hmm. intrepid female reporter does. So I think there's something mm -hmm. to that message as well. And lastly... I, this is a little bit trite, but opposites don't attract after all could be a message of the movie. You often hear, ah, oh, opposites attract. Hilda yeah. and Bruce are kind and courteous to each other, but they just aren't cut from the same cloth. They aren't destined to make each other happy. Walter and Hilda, yeah. by contrast, they seem made for and deserving of each other. Uh, absolutely. Um, I think that's very that's right about adapting, and you, that's the whole thing about that they really sort of light on their feet they're they're incredibly flexible they can turn mm. on a dime you know they're used to that so the fact it's a metabolism you know the tempo of that newspaper world and adapting to that it's like a it's a it's a world unto itself 
And it's almost if you can do that, you can do anything. But she needs that. I mean, she yeah. feeds. I think you're all, she feeds on that, and mm-hmm. he does too. And I think she's probably always going to say, "Oh, why can't we have a real honeymoon?" <laughs> then never. Every time they go on a honeymoon, there's going to be a fire or something, or a scoop breaking, um, right? <laughs> a scoop. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's really about the true self emerging, and what's more important than that? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. How are we supposed to think and feel about Walter and Hildy? I lead a film discussion group in which we recently discussed this film, and some people have some problems with not only you know their profession as it was in the day, but, I mean, are, are we supposed to root for these people? They seem like kind of despicable in many ways. So especially considering their amorality and their yellow journalism tactics, even unlawful behavior, how are we supposed to think and feel about Walter and Hildy? Well, you know, I have a, a sort of theme now that I, I sort of tried out. I had to do a panel on Gone with the Wind because I'd written a book about it, Turner Classic Movies, had a panel dealing with the like This was before the HBO kerfuffle, but it was mm. dealing with the legacy of Gone with the Wind. And I was on there with Donald Bogle and two black women, terrific women, one a producer and one a, an academic, talking about the legacy. And we talked about all the, the horrors of it and so forth. Fiedler. It said this too that you can love something and hate this. He didn't use these words. It was like you can object to something on ideological grounds and still love it emotionally somehow. Mm. And my feeling I said about Gone with the Wind, which I mean, show it. And the whole idea when you say is something relatable, uh, how are people going to deal with it now? Is the idea that they can't be made uncomfortable. Why not? Why can't we be uncomfortable? Why can't we look at this movie and see this is appalling? It's outrageous. It's totally morally and ethically questionable. Mm-hmm. But we can also understand the excitement of it, too. And you don't have to say you approve of yellow journalism. You mm-hmm. don't approve of it, or, or the, the underhanded things they do, and still find the charm in it. Hawks and the people and directors who direct these films are walking a tightrope. But I think it's also there's an element of cruelty in it, too. In this film and in, I mean, not just to Ralph Bellamy and to all the boobs in the hinterlands, but mm-hmm. to everybody under them. It's a, there's cruelty. But something about this, and there's something like that in Groundhog Day, too. And I think this, it cuts against the sentimentality of movies. Mm-hmm. And when you look, it's always the sentimental movies that don't really endure. And movies like this that have this darker side. And even the ending, which sort of leaves it, I mean, Hawks is never great with endings. He doesn't do happy endings. But the ambiguity at the end is part mm. of the strength of the movie. You're of two minds, and it's all right to be uncomfortable. Drama is about conflict. It's about women who have had fantasies that are not politically correct, you know, and gone with the wind and in many other movies. And, and somehow today, I think young people want to erase the ambivalence. They don't want to have to feel ambivalent yeah. about anything. Mm-hmm. They don't want to be uncomfortable about anything. Uh, you can de- you can deplore something in a movie and also respond to it, either emotionally or intellectually in other ways. It's called ambivalence. I love everything you just said. I completely agree with you. I think that in mm-hmm. terms of how we're supposed to think or feel about Walter and Hildy, well, that's up to you, obviously. We're not trying to tell people how to think or feel, but... I think that the bygone context helps here. We see that disclaimer at the start of the film that, you know, this story occurred oh, yeah. years ago, tries to briefly explain that this yeah, is how the journalism yeah, profession yeah. used to operate. Well, I mean, that that's not letting everybody off the hook so easily. But, okay, so the filmmakers are covering their bases a little. Wink, wink, right? But mm-hmm. I think, I believe we can abide by their hate behavior thanks to Hawk's unique style. You've already talked about this. So Hawks is known for often focusing on skilled professionals within an insular environment. 
experts mm-hmm. who are you know driven by a love of their work and a code of professionalism and camaraderie without being encumbered by sentimentality. There's that word again. But we are meant yeah. to believe that Hildy and Walter are the best at what they do, even if what they do is create sensationalistic journalism without ethics. And I think that mm-hmm. there's something to be admired in that kind of talent, even though what they do is somewhat unforgivable. You have to accept a certain degree of stylization in mm-hmm. films. It's not reality. I mean, people, newspaper men spend a lot of time hunched over typewriters not talking at all. They don't race around and talk a mile a minute like that. There's a convention. It's hyperbolic. In both the versions. So you have to accept that, too. That It's an exaggeration. They're not that unethical. They're not that fast. You know, all of those things. Right. It's, and that's, but that's also what makes it exciting. It's a kind of quintessence of a newspaper story, um, a love story. Plus, and, they don't give I mean, you much time to really sit and think about the moral problem. No, problems you're not supposed to. Because it's so fast. Well, I mean, that's the way. You, you figure that that's what gets them through the day. They don't. Mm-hmm. The, the reason they're talking all the time so fast is because they can't stop and think about what they're doing because they'd right. be so appalled if they, you know. <laughs> and neither can we. So, you know, despite the cramped yeah. milieu of basically, what, three or four main sets, Hawks, who's known for being a director of action pictures, right, he keeps things yeah. kinetic. He keeps things right. moving it's by having... It's an action having, picture, right. It's yeah, an action he, so he has speedily spoken words and sudden dramatic and mm. comedic twists function as the action elements and what would otherwise be mm-hmm. an essentially prosaic filming of a stage play, right? So in other words, Mm -hmm. you know, you think about the medium compositions, the the masterful editing, the intense focus Mm. on verbiage, all these things help distract us from any moral dilemmas we may feel. And this is ultimately, I would argue, an action movie, only it uses words and abrupt plot twists instead of things like what? Car chases, combat, explosions, to keep us riveted. Yeah. I mean, the words are projectiles in a way. I mean, they have an active function. Yeah, absolutely. I want to ask you, can you persuade someone to watch this movie today, especially a younger viewer who has never seen it before? How can you convince them that it's worthwhile and relevant? Well, I think for all the reasons I've already said about if you're going to track women, the various ways that women have progressed from the 30s and 40s to the present, Mm -hmm. if you're interested at all in that. And I think people should be because I think I already said this, but I think it's important to see the past to see how far we've come or how far we have uh, or haven't come. It's just necessary before you start criticizing the past for not being the present, for not having all the correct attitudes about everything, just see where they're coming from. And I mean, I just think to expand one's sort of moral and behavioral universe is important to see the films of the past, but I also understand that it may be too wide a gap. A lot of people that don't even want to deal with films of the past because it's just that past is, I mean, when I came along, there wasn't that much of a past, you know, mm-hmm. there was fewer decades to mm-hmm. even think about. Even silent cinema wasn't that far gone, mm-hmm. but now there's so much, it's hard. I, and I'm not, in constant touch with, I mean, the, I was doing this with David Schwartz, and he said, he was talking about how his students had real trouble with Godard. They found him extremely sexist, which he, he is probably. And I mean, I, I saw that even at the time, but I, I wasn't as struck by it then as I m- might be now. Mm-hmm. 
So I think there's some movies that can make the transition and some that just can't. And I think it's trial and error. Have you tried it? With You said you have shown it and they had trouble with it, but did they have too much trouble with it or were they able to appreciate it in spite of the... Well, it helps that my group skews a little bit older even than me. So, of course, they're more acclimated to older movies. But I'm I'm curious about the shelf life of the, of this movie. And you could ask this about any older Hollywood movie, a black and white movie, movie from the 40s, for example. It's kind of the same question that applies. How can uh, we get future generations to, you know, take interest in them? Who's going to be watching His Girl Friday in 80 years? Now, we're not going to be around. Mm. I hope it's not just some museum curio for art students, film students, and people who go to MoMA. I hope that there's a Turner Classic Movies or something similar that's still around. But for the reasons you said, I I think it's important to look at what the past can teach us, how women's roles have changed. And this movie can really teach us a lot about that. In some ways, it's a rhetorical question. I don't know if it can be answered. We're not going to be here to answer it. But I am concerned in terms of the shelf life, uh, the evergreen nature of some of these movies, because they deserve to be seen, even if they are problematic, even if they Mm. are dated morally, gender politics-wise, etc. I think that they really deserve a place in pop culture and the public consciousness, and they should not be forgotten about. We still listen to Beethoven symphonies, and those are several hundred years old. Why can't we be watching His Girl Friday? Well, I I agree. One of the reasons, in spite of the fact that film is taken seriously now and has been for quite a while as an art form, I think some people still don't take it that seriously. I mean, you talk about old films, you don't talk about old novels That's right. or old symphonies. You talk about Beethoven mm-hmm. symphonies or Jane Austen's novels. So, I mean, it should be on the same level, I think. But on the other hand, I think we do have PCM, we do have Criterion, we do have curators like Marty Scorsese and all sorts of preservationists. So I'm, I would assume that there will be people like that that will follow us and have this commitment. Mm-hmm. I just don't think it's ever going to be a huge number of people. It's going to be more... Not arcane, but sort of a little more specialized. Yeah, more niche. Right. Uh, yeah, and I'm just so glad that I lived when I did, <laughs> so <laughs> I could be the beneficiary of all the great things of, that came before me as well as now. But I think even the ones that are hot, you know, series and whatnot that are just that are all anybody talks about. I mean, they've sort of taken over that place that Hollywood narrative film once occupied of stories that people were seeing and talking about. I mean, they, they're going to become dated as well. We just don't know which ones are going to be more dated than others. And yeah, that, the, the content today, a lot of it is so disposable and forgettable. Yeah. And it's just yeah. mass produced to an extent that there's too much crowding the ether. There's too much choice. Yeah, but there are also some very good ones. There's some really Absolutely. terrific series. It's a golden yeah, age really for, for uh, television programming in terms it of uh, the streaming channels and cable TV yeah. and things like that. So I'm not trying to denigrate and because. No, but Hollywood is just given. I mean, you don't. I don't mm. think that you can even call them movies that come out of Hollywood now, for the most part. So yeah. it, we're relying mostly on the independent cinema and other cinemas to give us what Hollywood once did. I mean, this is this was really we're looking back on the golden age mm-hmm. and never to return. But yeah, I agree with you. I just hope that there are people that are in tune with all of these that will bring them to before new audiences. And I think they will, if there is a world at all. I want to ask you, what is His Girl Friday's greatest gift to viewers? So Cineversary is a program that celebrates a milestone anniversary or birthday, if you will, of a major motion picture. And mm. uh, birthdays are all about getting presents. Only I always contend that it's the fans who continue to get the gifts here. So yeah, what is the greatest gift to viewers here? 
Well, first of all, I think the screwball comedy of the 30s and 40s is one of the great genres ever. And nothing has ever matched it since then for the excitement and, and charisma of, the, of a man and a woman. I mean, we don't have couple films like that quite anymore. Battling it out with talk as the eros, as the engine. Talk is exciting. I mean, you think of talk, you just think of talking heads or something like that. It's talk mm. as action, talk as sex. And where are you going to get that? Because that, certainly after the end of the production code, you had sex for sex. And I think there's something, it's a kind of relief sometimes in going back to a, a time when sex was sort of repressed and it was sublimated into talk. And, and that's very exciting. And that'll never happen again. So I think anyone who values language and talk and incredible pairings of stars, I mean, that was also a tradition of the time and the Sin Man and all these movies. You had two stars who clicked and you would see not necessarily the same stars, but interesting pairings of males and females. Yes. And just seeing that in the context of all these others and thinking about these different actors and how they interacted and the barks they struck. That, I mean, there's nothing like it. And this is one of the absolute best of the screwball comedies, not to Good. mention newspaper comedies. <laughs> Couldn't say it better, and I agree. I mean, besides the impeccable casting, which includes, as we said, the brilliance of using Ralph Bellamy, it's yet another comical love interest who loses the girl to Cary Grant. And yeah. in addition to the use of so many great character actors, we didn't even talk about it. You got Porter Hall, Gene Lockhart, mm -hmm. Roscoe Carnes, Billy Gilbert, Abner Biberman. I mean, there's so many yeah. familiar faces here you've seen in other comedies and movies. Besides these things, I think you said it best. The greatest gift is... The snappy discourse, the speedy dialogue, mm. the astounding mm. verbal gymnastics that are aced by the actors and the characters they portray. So many films mm -hmm. impress with their masterful visuals and compositions. I think His Girl Friday stands out instead for its words and their breakneck tempo and rhythm. To me, it's probably mm. less funny than it is fascinating for its wordplay and the dynamism of its two leads. Yeah, well said. Are you currently working on anything that listeners should check out? Anything for Criterion? Well, I'm saying, no, I don't have, I am working on something, but it's at the early stages, and it's, it's really going to be, I hope, a kind of memoir about movie love in the 60s and 70s, and also a kind of memoir, just a personal memoir, you know, sort of, it's a, one of these hybrid forms where it's, mm. it's both personal memoir and memoir of a, a time, and I also want to sort of pay tribute to Andrew, my deceased husband and sort of what he did and meant for me. So a combination of things, and I'm trying to get it done. Yeah, the great Andrew Saris, who uh, left behind mm -hmm. such a wonderful legacy with his film criticism Thanks. and his books. Yes, sorely missed, but we'll keep an eye out for that. Uh, is that going to be in book form, I assume? Uh, well, I hope so, if they're still <laughs> publishing. I mean, that's sort of gloomy, <laughs> I'm sort of pessimistic now about whether we'll ever have new more books, and everything is a little bit of a standstill now, but that's fine for me because I'm still sort of working away, and it'll be a while before I have anything to show. I think you'll have an avid audience for something like that, so I'll certainly keep my eye out for it. I hope my audience does as well. But Molly, thank you again so much for agreeing to appear on Cineversary and for the generous use of your time. Thank you, Eric, and I look forward to hearing all of your podcasts, so I really enjoyed this. Oh, so fun to talk to a film expert I've long admired. Much gratitude to Molly for appearing on our show, and on very short notice, I might add. Molly, you are the best. That's definitely another bucket list item I can mark off. And that takes us to standing ovations. This is where I give a shout-out to a movie, a book, website, a TV program, podcast, or other work that I think would be of interest to classic film lovers. 
This time around, I'm pointing my compass to a fellow podcast, and what a podcast. It's called Origins, hosted and written by James Andrew Miller, and it offers multi-episode miniseries on different pop culture creations and topics. Previous examples include a five-episode deep dive into Larry David's Curb Your Enthusiasm and a three-part foray into Saturday Night Live. Origins' latest outing is a six-chapter retrospective celebrating the 20th anniversary of Cameron Crowe's love letter to rock and roll, Almost Famous. The cool thing is that all the important collaborators are included. So you got Cameron Crowe, Kate Hudson, Francis McDormand, Billy Crudup, Zoe Deschanel, Jimmy Fallon, Patrick Fugit, and Jason Lee all participated in this miniseries. It's well worth your time and serves as a nice anniversary type counterpart that spotlights yet another film commemorating a milestone anniversary like we do right here. So I encourage you to check it out. Instead of cluttering up our podcast with advertisements, we've decided to ask our listeners for their support. We could use your help to offset the costs to produce anniversary, which includes expenses like podcast hosting provider fees. If you'd like to make a monetary contribution to the Cineversary podcast in any amount, large or small, we've made it safe and simple by partnering with PayPal to collect the funds. Simply visit tinyurl.com, that's T-I-N-Y-U-R-L.com, slash Donate Cineversary, and click on the Donate button. Any major credit card is accepted, and the entire transaction is handled securely and confidentially by PayPal. Or if you're familiar with PayPal, you can simply send us a payment in any amount you want to cineversegroup at gmail.com. And that's spelled C-I-N-E-V-E-R-S-E group at gmail.com. We really appreciate your generosity. Also, I'd love to hear what you think of our Cineversary podcast. You can email me suggestions or comments at cineversegroup at gmail.com. And I encourage you to visit cineversegroup.com, the portal for my film discussion group that I launched in 2005, where you can hear podcast recordings of our group discussions and read more about the movies we study. And that brings us to the end of another installment of Cineversary. Are you eager to learn what's on the agenda for August? We're going to venture back to medieval Japan for one of the highest praised and highest prized works of world cinema. The deeply philosophical, thought-provoking, and timeless Rashomon. Helmed by Akira Kurosawa, originally released in August 1950. This has been your humble host, Eric Martin, reminding you to butter up that popcorn, live a big screen surround sound life, stay safe and healthy through this pandemic, and cherish those classic movies because they're getting better, not older. Thanks again for giving us a listen. 